this is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and this is the March-April edition of Interview with a PD Pod for 2023. Uh, this is also probably the last podcast that uh, will come out before the annual meeting in Nashville this year, which I'm really looking forward to. My guests today are uh, friends of mine and uh, people who have sort of shared part of the journey through orthopedics with me. Julie and Quincy Samora are who I would probably consider the first family of pediatric orthopedics, as I don't know of any other couples who are who have been married throughout their entire career. Quincy and I actually graduated the same year. Julie and I both serve on the program committee for the annual meeting this year, so I've had an opportunity to interact with them a bit through the years. Uh, but I was really interested in talking to them to figure out how in the world they make this work. Uh, I think that for me, this is a challenging profession as it is, and the balance of everything that I do at work and then life and family is so difficult and I rely so much on my wife who is not in medicine. And the idea of doing that with a spouse who's in medicine is uh, is really mind-blowing. And they've done it well and they've got uh, great kids and they've got a wonderful family life that allows them to do a lot of things outdoors and they're very involved in each other's practice as, they, as their partners. Uh, Julie is a hand surgeon at Columbus, Ohio, at Nationwide Children's, and uh, Quincy is a sort of spine and a little bit more of a generalist uh, in the department as well. They both have quite a bit of uh, interaction with residents and mentees, and so we talk a bit about mentoring and education. Um, Julie's also been very involved with the DEI initiative through POSNA. So I found this to be an incredible conversation. Again, I, I don't know how they do it. Um, they give some of the secrets. Uh, I hope that you enjoy this as much as I did. And um, again, I really look forward to seeing you all in Nashville in a month. Uh, I'm going to formally welcome you into uh, the podcast. I am really looking forward to this, Julie. You and I had a chance to spend a day and a half together in Chicago not long ago, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And then Quincy, you and I uh, sort of uh, go back because I think we graduated at the same time, so yes. we took boards together and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So we've got a little bit of uh, history there. Um, so I, uh, I'm sure that the listener will enjoy a good love story. So can you guys give me a little bit of background about sort of how you guys met and uh, and where that started? Yeah, we actually met on the tennis court on daylight savings day, um, and I will never forget this because this actually is. Um, it tells you Quincy's personality and mine. So I went out to hit some tennis balls on the public courts in West Virginia with my housemate at the time. And um, there was this guy like lying on the courts the whole time we were hitting. And he looked relatively familiar, but I didn't know him. Um, And so finally I just walk over and I'm like, why are you lying on the courts? He's like, oh, I have a lesson. I said, you have a lesson? I said, you've been laying here for like 45 minutes. He's like, oh, I'm sure the person that I'm teaching just didn't realize it was daylight savings day. You know, I would have waited five minutes and left. But no, no, my, my husband stayed there the entire hour and waited for them to come an hour late. So that that's um, and that's how we met. That is awesome. Uh, as somebody who is who tries to play a lot of tennis and is relatively terrible at it, I can uh, imagine that that would have been that that sort of would have been an interesting way to start a relationship, especially I don't know, Julia, if, if, if you're pretty strong, but if Quincy is uh, at the level that he's coaching and teaching, you've got to be pretty Yeah, he was uh, a tennis pro for a couple years to get his um, West Virginia residence, so he didn't have to pay the out-of-state medical school taxes. So yeah, I mean, he's, we're both pretty good. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Now, are you guys both originally from West Virginia? 
I am. Quincy basically is. He's Phil- He's from the Philippines. Gotcha. Okay. When, when did you guys move over? Well, we, we moved to California when I was a senior in high school and then went to West Virginia University essentially for the remainder of my academics, college, med school, residency. You know, Julie and I met when we were both in medical school, but since she ha- she was in the MD-PhD program and I was in the regular, I was only a year ahead of her in medical school, which is why we didn't know each other. But when she took her four years to do her PhD, that was, it, it ended up being perfect because being five years ahead of her, I graduated from residency at the same time she graduated from medical school. So from a decision-making process, it made it easier for us to figure out the, the timing. We both for that next step, I had to find a fellowship and she had to find a residency, but it, it could have been at the same institution or same place. So making couples matching even more complex that there's no way that you can sort of <laughs> couples match into residency and a med school. Correct. Uh, residency Correct. and fellowship. I mean, for yeah. residency and fellowship. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So um, Quincy, for you, was that sort of a, I mean, obviously coming from the Philippines to California is probably enough of a change, but then going to West Virginia, was that a bit of a culture shock or well not necessarily I, I spent I spent most of my summers in the in the US my dad was a New Yorker and spent half of my time in New York and half of my time in San Diego where the rest of the family was so about three three to four months out of the year I was in the US and then the remainder of my kind of school year I was in the uh, Manila gotcha and and so if you were a tennis pro then you did you guys both play in college yes okay and so uh, you went to Carnegie Mellon right Julie and where yes. and where did you go Western Western University. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. That's great. Um, All right. So I was going to ask this. I I can't remember the show, but I wanted you, Julie, to describe Quincy as a kid. How would you describe Quincy as as, as a young kid? A pleaser. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Quincy? How about Julie? What was Julie like as a kid? Uh, Driven, goal-oriented, successful. So where did the connection uh, come up? I mean, you guys met on a tennis court, but sort of how long did that build, it would take to build and and uh, and grow? Like, what, uh, when did you guys start dating? And, and I mean, we dating? pretty much started dating very quickly thereafter. We started seeing each other in the med center because we had now made a connection. And then we started hitting tennis balls. And then I got my free lessons, which was great. um and then yeah like three months later i was like where's my wedding ring (laughs) (laughs) we gotta go go. let's go (laughs) now what was it like uh sort of dating somebody who had sort of a a a similar career path or a career trajectory but was a little bit ahead because obviously quincy was in residency and you're in med school but you guys both wanted to end up in the same spot um what's what was that like uh was it did did you find that that it worked well did it find that sort of the, the the gap in the academic sort of uh, experience was challenging at times? Yeah. So I would say it was, you know, I, I, I mentor a lot of women and I always, you know, talk about the need to get pregnant whenever you have the desire, because had I waited, I went through menopause at like 35. So had I waited until after residency was over, I wouldn't have been able to have my own biologic children. And so when, 
when I was doing my PhD, I got a couple other master's degrees, got married, had two kids, um, and then went back into med school. And it was like the best time to get pregnant. Although, you know, there's, I say there's no, but there's no good time. It was really, really fantastic. It was okay. Let's get married. Let's get, you know, let's get pregnant. (laughs) And I did. And between child one and child two, I had a miscarriage and I was like, Oh my gosh, this messes up my plan. (laughs) So, um, so it was very, it was great actually to have that, um, kind of gap. Um, and I also think one of the things that was really nice about Quincy being in residency when I was in med school is that when I was in West Virginia, there was no musculoskeletal curriculum. So I don't think I would have ever been exposed to ortho at all. So as much as it kills me to give him credit for choosing ortho because of him, I think that's why I chose ortho is because I saw it through him. Otherwise I would not have had the experience or the exposure. Gotcha. And Quincy, why, why ortho? You know, the, the joke in ortho is, you know, you're either a, a patient or an athlete. And I was uh, thankfully not a patient. I really enjoyed the just the, the muscular and the musculoskeletal aspects uh, of it. Uh, when I was in between college and med school, um, I volunteered in the emergency department for as much as I can, just for some experience. And um, it was one where I think I got along the best with the ortho residents, and you know I, I enjoyed kind of what they were doing, the procedural things, you know how they went ab- about their way. So, and I didn't really want to do ortho initially. I liked I liked dermatology, I liked uh, anesthesia, med peds. I was really all over the place. So uh, it was just I, I kind of fell into it, just feeling that it was the best fit for me after. Uh, seeing all the different subspecialties. Gotcha. And like, and like Julie, Julia always wanted to do hand. And I think for me, the the contribution that I have in her career was basically swaying her from plastics to ortho because she's wanting to, had, had wanted to do hand for a really, really long time. And with her microvascular background and PhD and her really microvascular work, it was either plastics or ortho. And I think once she went through the, the general surgery part of it, realized that eh, it's really not that fun uh, to do general surgery and then plastic. So I think that was where the, the ortho um, part came in. Well, we appreciate your contribution to that uh, to that career path. <laughs> Julie, I remember when we were sitting next to each other at dinner um, for the planning committee, that your one of your comments was that you had too many degrees. So for the listener, if I'm right, you have a fine arts degree, a music degree, and a PhD. Is that right? Am I gonna? Am I missing one? Um, I have master's degrees in both public health and public administration. Public, so. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Was I right on fine arts? Was fine arts in there someplace? So I have a master's in music and then a bachelor's of my bachelor's included both biological sciences and music. So yeah. Okay. Wait, and then so the so the master's after in public health. Yes. And then the PhD was in what? So I, I got my, I left from undergrad. I still didn't have a physics lab because it was always dur- during um, orchestra. And I was basically there on a music scholarship. So I went to Yale to get my music master's and finish my required physics lab or something for, yeah, it was a physics lab so that I could even apply to med school. So I got my master's of music separately but then when I was doing my PhD, I received um, a master's of public health and, and public administration. They didn't have healthcare administration 
when I was first there, they they now have a, they now have a school of public health in, in West Virginia. But I had a, like an added certificate of healthcare administration because they didn't have healthcare administration when I was there. That is crazy. I mean, you've got to have as many uh, added degrees as anybody probably. You know, so it, it sounds crazy, but actually, when I was doing my PhD, I like missed taking courses. So you know, the first you know year or two, you're just taking courses while you're doing your you know experiments and and figuring out your lab situation. And then once you're fully in the lab, that's it. Like you don't have contact with people. You're not taking classes. And so I missed that. So for me, the reason I got the public health, public health, I got in a year and I was like, well, that was, that was pretty easy. Um, and then I was looking, what else could I learn, you know, while I'm stuck in the lab? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, and, and just so that I understand, so the PhD was, was running concurrently with med school. Correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and the, and you had your kids then? Yes. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's, it's, sorry. It's a, it's circuitous enough that I'm like trying to make I sure. I know it's I've crazy. It if you actually yeah. look at my CV, it looks really dumb. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but, <laughs> but I did have a purpose and it did, everything sort of was there for a reason. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I think one of the great things, like you said before, is you guys were able to do all of your training uh, Julie in, in one city while Quincy, you were there and then transition over to Ohio state. Right. Yeah. So he and the kids stayed here in Columbus. And I went to Boston. Yeah. Okay. So how do you do that? Yeah. Well, we have a live-in nanny, which if we didn't have her, there's, we still have her and our kids are almost like, you know, completely self-sufficient now that our nanny now is just an Uber driver for our daughter who hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll get her license. Um, but so we could not have done it without a live in nanny and obviously you can't do it without a, you know, support system. But I think for us, our support system, because none of our family lives close is our live in nanny. And so she would on the kids breaks fly to Boston. If Quincy was free, he would come. And then on my breaks, I would fly back to Columbus. And so it's challenging, but it's a lot of people do it. And during that year, I met so many couples and families that were living apart, either short-term or long-term. And it's doable if you have a support system. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, I feel like outside of medicine, there's really no other area. I guess maybe if, if you work for a company that gets relocated to like another country where that seems so prevalent, like you guys obviously know Alex Bartola, our fellow right now. And we were talking a couple of days ago because we had our fellowship interviews and he was telling a couple of the applicants how he now buys two tickets every Friday like a 5.30 flight and a 7.30 flight, and Delta will just let you, as long as you cancel it up to a minute before, you can just cancel the 5.30. He uses that credit to buy the next week's ticket. He does it every single week, and I thought that is amazing. Um, And he's got a time. So his wife, they leave the house at 6.35 for a 7.30 flight. He walks in the airport at 6.55. He's on the plane by 7.15. I mean, it's like clockwork. So I'm sure that you figured things out, how to make them work. Quincy, how did you make it work so that you were able, because you, you were obviously uh, relatively, uh, let's see if I'm doing the math, you were, what, about four years into practice? It was 2015, so. Okay, so five years into practice. Yeah, five years into practice. So like you and I, I mean, I remember, because again, we started at the same time, mm-hmm. that was still a time of growth in my practice. And how did you manage having kids who, again, trying to do the math, they probably would have been sort of like, five, six, something like, or probably maybe a little bit older, six, seven, something like that. How did you make that work during that year as you're trying to build your practice and your wife's in a separate city? I know that you talked about the nanny, but just sort of the logistics on a day-to-day basis of growing your practice, making sure that you're, you know, attentive to your patients, but also caring for the kids and making sure that they're getting some parental love. 
Yeah, you know, I think on a day-to-day, it was a little bit easier just because you either were in clinic or in the OR. And so those days were were pretty straightforward. You did your clinic, you came back and uh, hung out with the, with the kids. I think the, the difficulty was in call when you were, you know, on call uh, on weekends where the schedule was a little bit more uh, unpredictable. And I, I think the the easy answer is we had one year it was one year it was a finite amount of time and we knew that we we needed to do everything that we could to make it through that year and it was it was a challenging year for sure from a from a timing standpoint but you know once again with with having a nanny here we really didn't have to worry as much if we got called in in the middle of the night or if we had to work uh, weekends or evenings and so i think that was probably the critical piece there. We just, you know, having a supportive environment, you know, our, our practices uh, was growing at the time. When I first started, there were only five of us. And by the time Julie went off to fellowship, I think we were about seven or eight. So the call burden wasn't as much. It was, you know, one a week. And so I think it just made it made life easier just because things were, we were still very, very busy, but we were, you know, in a hiring you know, uh, where less, there was just less work to be done. So, um, back then there was probably a, a fair a surplus of nannies, but obviously over the past couple of years, people have seen that drop off a little bit. I think hiring in that area has probably been harder. Do you think this is really feasible without either a live in nanny or a family in town to no. do a fellowship? No, oh, okay. I mean, you need, you need a village and yeah. that village can be anything. It can be family. It can be friends. It can be an au pair. It can be a nanny. It can be a, a slew of babysitters, but you need a village. There's no way to do it without your village, whatever that village is. Yeah. Understood. Um, and Julie, can you comment a little bit on how that year was for you? Obviously as, as a mother, you, you know, you want to be near your kids as a wife, you want to be near your husband. Um, but you had some incredible mentors and I'm sure it's a pretty busy year. Um, knowing, Don and Peter's uh, practices in particular, as, as busy as they were at the time, how, how did you sort of navigate f- making sure that you kept the focus on why you were there without sort of either not giving your family enough attention or not going crazy missing? Yeah, them? no, it's a good question. And it's funny because it was not nearly as busy as I thought it would be. So when I was there, I was 100% there. It was lovely because I didn't have the distraction of my family. So I could be there 100%. And then when my family came into town, it was either a free weekend or what have you, or I went home and I was with my family 100% of the time. And and actually, um, when my family wasn't there, I had more downtime than I had ever had. So I was like, well, what can I do in this year? And I was like, I'm going to train for the Boston Marathon. So um, that was a really nice opportunity, which I would never have that time. I mean, it was it was very time consuming. I actually kept, I, I had the little um, uh, training schedule on my refrigerator at the time. And I still have those pieces of paper it's somewhere in my files because, you, you know, you, you do, a, you know, three hour run this day, you do a seven hour run this day and you do a a five hour run this day. Like there's no way I have time to even fathom doing those um, training sessions now, but I had the time then because I didn't actually have family that I had to care for right then and there. And so um, there was more time than I expected. And when I was wherever I was, whether I was with, you know, fellowship folks or with my family, I was there um, full time, which 
I don't do as well now. I mean, my daughter says I never pay attention to her because I'm always you know, doing something on my phone, either sending emails or texts or, or answering pages or talking to families. And so, you know, now it's actually even harder to give my kids their hundred percent attention because I'm distracted by work things. So. <laughs> yeah, that is incredible though. But, but, uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, we, I trained in Dallas and, and I tell people who sort of want to know about that fellowship, one of the unique aspects is you take in-house call at a hospital that effectively never needs you. So like once in a while, a clubfoot cast will fall off or you'll have to run to the floor and see something. But I mean, you would go entire days without getting called. And back then this was, you know, when we all went through this, there wasn't really much smartphone. Uh, the, the TV had three channels and you, and the hospital blocked a bunch of like, you couldn't get ESPN. So I just did research. Cause like, what else was I going to do? I wasn't allowed to leave the hospital grounds. My kids, my wife would bring the kids over because it was sort of an apartment, but you could get very productive if you don't have anything else to do, you right. know? Um, and they had a gym as well. And I would do like three hour workouts because um, it was, it was pretty crazy. So moving on to sort of your practices, Quincy, um, can you give me a little bit of an idea sort of what your practice is? I know that you, I, I think we're actually somewhat similar. I, I mean, I don't have an interest in sports, but we have kept a fairly general bend. I know you do a fair amount of spine. You have an interest in sports. You do general peds ortho. Has that always been there? Have you gotten more subspecialized as your uh, group has gotten more subspecialized? Yeah, we've, we've transitioned. When, when I first started, there weren't enough of us to be able to do really subspecialization. So we all had several different things that we, we did. And actually, the initial need when I first started was sports. Our, our chief, uh, Kevin, was the really only sports guy there, and there there was nobody doing any shoulder. So I came in, and I did mostly sports, and then, you know, as, as you know, a spine practice takes a while to build, and I remained general. I still did hips. I still did, you know, club feet, and then basically over over time, my spine practice started to grow. And the other, the other piece was the education piece. Uh, one of my passions is really resident education. And so I became the assistant program director and then the program director in 2014 for the, for the department. And so right around that same time, we had a resident who was interested in PED sports, ended up doing two fellowships in sports and then peds and then we hired him on as our pediatric sports guy and so at that point my practice started to shift more towards spine so basically he he took my my sports practice and that was about 2014 2015 right around the time that I was transitioning to program director Gotcha. And also the time that your wife was doing a fellowship right right yeah, that's, right that's it, yeah it all tend to happen yeah right around the same time yeah, I mean, good that you were because I assume you were doing a fair amount of spine before because spine's not one of those things that you can just sort of like turn on a spigot and do all the most complex stuff. It ta- it's almost Correct. a uh, I w- I probably wouldn't tell my younger self this, but it's it's almost uh, ideal that it takes a while to build because I think if you walk into you know hundred degree curves and um, things that need vertebrectomies, you're probably going to have more complications. It's nice to sort of build to a crescendo there. Yes, yeah, I did I did my my peds training in residency at Cincinnati Children's and was able to work with um, Al Crawford quite a bit. And one of his uh, sayings was you don't dabble in spine. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I 
you know, you hear these things a lot and that's definitely true. There are certain things that you need kind of fellowship level and then you need help as a, as an attending, you know, complex spine is one of them, you know, pelvic, uh, some of the very, very nitty gritty stuff. But yeah, I agree. It was one of the, the great things about our department here is we do dual surgeon for our spines. And so as a young attending, it was really critical that I knew that I had a, an older, more experienced attending to help me through any of the, the little things, even little things that you forget. Because when you first start, and you know most of us are going to start in August, you, know, you don't get your first operative spine for probably two or three or four months. And it's almost never the spine that you've been following, you know, those kids that you follow and you brace and they progress, progress, progress. It's always that kid that comes into your clinic with a 55 degree curve that nobody ever had, had noticed prior. And so that took probably three or four months. And then, you know, you, you lose a little bit of your, your fellowship vigor, you know, when you're a fellow, you could do pretty much anything. Yeah. hundred degrees curve, you know, three vertebrectomies, no problem. But when you become an attending, you start to doubt pretty much everything. And so that was one of the keys to this department is, is having that uh, co-surgeon really to, to help out and, and to push you along the, the parts that you kind of forget or uh, need some extra work in. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. Um, <clears throat> I think we've, it sounds like we both have, have really benefited from having somebody to help with that. So what's your uh, week like right now? Um, you know, how, how do you break it down? Um, especially sort of, again, as a two surgeon couple, does it afford you the opportunity to have a little bit more uh, sort of admin time or time to, to think or complete, you know, uh, leadership tasks? Or uh, how, how do you structure your week right now? So I am still technically 100% clinical. When I started, I was given a half day of admin time to do, you know, research and whatnot. I think they took that half day away from me the first week I started. <laughs> and so um, I'm actually one of those, you know, weird guys who actually likes clinic. So for, for the entirety of my career, I have three full days of clinic. Um, which I'll see upwards of, you know, 50 patients, uh, a clinic that has not changed over the last 14 years. I have two OR days. One day is typically for spine and electives and the other day is either for my post called trauma block or my, uh, another spine day. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think, uh, for, for, for all the listeners, they probably are mostly peds people and clinic is, uh, in my mind, so much better than any other specialty. It's, you know, it's fun. It could definitely be exhausting some days, but I think that uh, it's it's a nice break. I actually did four days in the OR last week and was thinking towards the end, you know, I sort of sort of wish I'd had an extra clinic day in here. You yes. know, clinic's, uh, yes. clinic's fun. Um, Julie, how about you? So um, I, I've, you know, I've been curious because I feel like, again, as somebody who has a lot of spine and um, had an, has had an interest in, in hip as well, those are things that take a while. I can only imagine congenital hand. Um, because there's probably a big need for hand, but like sort of the, the, the complexity of hand levers up very quickly. And how long did that take to, to build and where, you know, where do you feel like you are in that pendulum right now? Are you fully, is that fully matured or do you feel like you're you still have uh, growth there? Yeah. If anyone says they're fully matured and don't have growth, that's uh, that to me would be a little surprising of a statement. So yeah. um, I feel very confident in my abilities, but of course, every time I have a case, I learn something new. Um, the beauty of when I started practice at Nationwide, which was in 2015, 
was I walked into a full practice, which was just amazing. I have a senior partner who is an adult surgeon, but does about 20% of his practice at Children's Hospital. And so um, the beauty is if I had any questions or concerns, he would scrub it on a case with me. But I would say I very, very, very infrequently work with him, um, maybe, maybe four to eight times a year. Um, and that's usually we'll do our policizations together. And um, if there's something weird, I didn't have a ton of arthrogryposis um, training. And so even just a few weeks ago, we did an arthrogryposis elbow together. And so my partners were so happy to give me all of the hand stuff. Um, so my first clinics were, you know, 40 patients, all, all hand patients. And so um, I have a very nice practice of, you know, a lot of trauma and then congenital and I am where I would love to be, and and I'm happy to not do anything else besides that. That's great. So, yeah, and you guys referenced this earlier. I mean, you do have a living nanny, but uh, call I'm sure is does become a burden now that your kids are older. Because I know that at least for mine, like I can actually leave them at home even if I went in the middle of the night. I think our kids are actually the same age. But when they were a little bit younger, how did that? How much sort of weekly or monthly planning went into the logistics of you guys both having to cover call on different days and you know that kind of stuff yeah it's not bad at all because again i i feel like our fallback person who's tina who she's been with us now for almost 12 years i think so i mean she just is that rock for us if we had call i would say the tricky parts were when we would go to the same conferences together so call i mean i take a lot of call i've um I would say when COVID hit, I stopped taking, I was taking, you know, half of the year of call of hand. And now I only take, you know, a third of the year of call of hand, which is a much better place. Um, but when we do conferences together, for example, whether it's the AOA or Academy or POSNA, um, that's a little bit trickier because then she's a hundred percent responsible for the kids, which again, she does, but we just have to give her a little heads up. Hey, we're leaving in March or Hey, we're leaving in June. Um, so that she knows that she's a hundred percent responsible. And do you guys uh, go to most conferences together? Like, for example, probably not Hand Society, but do you go to POSNA and IPOS routinely together? I think IPOS is the only conference that we currently go together at this point. You know, for me, I'm I'm more likely than Julie to to want to be the plus one at a conference if her hand conference is in a great place. Whereas if if I'm having conference let's say, you know, SRS is in Prague, uh, number one, anytime I ask her if she wants to go, she's already been there. She's like, yeah. oh yeah, I did concerts there when I was in <laughs> high school, number one, or number two, she doesn't have enough time. So she says, listen, I, I'm already pushing the time limits of my, you know, PTO. So uh, rarely do we ever go to the same conference. Um, IPOS and, and POS and I think are the only two that, that really will go to, together. AOA also, and every now and again Academy. Yeah, right, right. So um, I want to move on, and I'm, I'm going to sort of gloss over research. You guys have actually both been pretty proliferative in research, but I feel like what I know you for, and Quince, you referenced it earlier, is teaching. But I want to start with Julie. So uh, as I've gotten to know you, especially through IPOS, this really seems to be a huge passion of yours. Um you have, you know, given talks at the master's technique le uh, level on actually teaching and, and education, which is great. Can you talk about sort of where this started and how this grew over time? Is it just a product of doing so many, so much additional training and so much additional education of yourself that you've just wanted to sort of pay it forward? 
So for me, I would say I am a better mentor than I am an educator. Um, and it depends on who I am educating. So if someone is a high school student, a college student, a medical student, an intern, I am a wonderful educator. When I expect them to know more than they know, um, then I'm not as good of an educator. And what I mean by that is I think there is maybe a generational difference in preparation these days. And I think that that's a big challenge. Quincy is a much better educator than I am. Um, his patience level, again, based on our story of him waiting for someone for an hour on daylight savings day, um, is what makes him an educator. I will tease him when I, I bird dog his OR cases and it takes him, you know, an hour and a half to do a tibial tubercle. I'm like, what took you so long? Um, and he's like, well, the residents have to learn, honey. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah. So um, I think the challenge is when I expect a certain level of preparation or, you know, reading um, and it's not been done, then I struggle with that, with that um, trainee. Um, when I expect nothing, I just sort of spoon feed and kind of teach. And I love that. It's really, really enjoyable. For me, the younger folks are easier or the fellows are easier because, again, they they have sort of a level of understanding. It's sort of those mid-levels, which we have. Um, we mostly have PGY3s. Of course, we'll have interns do a month with us, but we'll have PGY3s for six months. And I think for me, the challenge there is... Um, you know, when someone comes into the operating room, let's say, and they have done no reading and it's, oh, what are we doing today? That I struggle with. And, and that's where Quincy just, you know, he just ignores it and just goes on and teaches them and let them um, operate. And so I would say that for me, um, obviously at the podium level, at the mentorship level, um, at the young level, I, I really, really, really enjoy that. I very, very much struggle with that sort of mid, mid-level resident education. I love that level of introspection, Julie. I feel like I struggle so much along a similar line. Quincy, what is the secret? Because I, <laughs> because I, I do agree. So I, my approach, I think a lot of times is what, what yours is, especially, for example, last week I had a case cancel. So I did a medial open reduction to the hip and I was able to like take the residents sort of slowly through the case because I, you know, the case afterwards wasn't there. And so you know, a little bit less time pressure. And that's, I think that is a real thing as much as I'd like to say it's not, but how do you manage that? Because I, I totally agree, Julie. I feel as though as, as the three of us have gotten further into our career, that mid-level education is not, uh, sorry, mid-level learner is not preparing the same way that I feel like I did. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it's a personality thing. I think you're going to, you're going to inject your personality into your your practice in, in the OR as well. And I think Julie's impatient in all aspects of her life. So <laughs> it's not like there's anything that's different uh, about the, you know, the, the operating room. Whereas, you know, I think I just uh, enjoy working with the residents. It's, um, you know, we've, we've been doing this a long time. And I think the, the challenge for me is when they come in for, rotations and they're with us for six months and you work with them, get them right where you want them to be. And then they leave. And then it's a whole new set of, of residents. And that I think is one of the bigger challenges. You know, you forget what jokes you've told in the OR and, and, and whatnot. But I think the, the one thing that's also important is the level of interest of the resident. You know, I, I can't expect every single resident to have read. There's a lot of stuff you know, we have a spine conference and we'll have some residents come into the spine conference. But, you know, if you think about 
our, our personalities as, as surgeons, you know, all being kind of fairly narcissistic, we all like people that like us. And, and so if you have a, a bunch of residents that are just not interested, I'll usually talk to them right before the case and say, hey, listen, you know, if, if you do the parts that we're allowing you to do, which is even just dissection and some other things, this is going to take an extra hour. Do you want the experience or do you want to be out of here an hour earlier? And so, you know, some are there. They say, hey, listen, I'm going to go into sports. Just teach me while you are doing what you're doing and let's all get out of here and enjoy the rest of the day, as opposed to those that really want to go into spine and you know, you're going to try to mentor them through that, that case. So it's a, it's a case by case uh, basis for sure. I think that's a really important point, And it's something that I struggle with, you know, there are certain residents as they get more, they get further along, they may be, you know, more capable, for example, with a kerosene or with a bone scalpel. And so they can do part of the pontiosteotomy, but sometimes I'll ask them and they'll be like, dude, I'm going into you know, I'm going to be doing shoulder arthroscopy. Mm-hmm. The last thing I need to know is how to use a kerosen. Um, and, and I think you're right. And I think we may, as educators, oftentimes go in with the idea that like, what I'm doing is cool. You should want to know how to do it. And they're looking at it like, this is a, a skill. I mean, yes, it's good to learn to use your hands, but if I'm never going to use this again, maybe it's not A, right for the patient and B, right for this, uh, you know, for this occurrence for me to be doing that. And it's, it does, it's, it's a difficult balance to strike. And maybe that's one of the bigger errors that we make as educators is trying to make them fit us rather than trying to fit, meet them where they need us. Yeah. I mean, I also think that there, there's no way that I would have the patience that Quincy has to allow the residents to struggle. I mean, he'll let them struggle for 20, 30 minutes (laughs) And I am just looking at the clock thinking, okay, I've got this, 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 this to do, you know, and, and the the longer they're under anesthesia, we know the outcomes aren't as good. So it is, I think Quincy's right when he says it's a personality thing, he's got the patience to let them struggle for half an hour. I definitely don't. I also really like having, you know, when I tell the front desk, I'm going to take 30 minutes for the this case, they know hundred percent that I am going to take 30 minutes to do this case. So it, it kind of buys you goodwill at that front desk. Yep. So if you have an add on, you're not going to say, Oh, I'm going to take 30 minutes and they know you're going to take an hour and a half. So when I say it takes me, you know, 30 minutes to do this from start to finish, they know that that's the case. And so I think it's tough. I think it's a really tough place to be in. That is such an important thing. And I'd say for the young people out there, you can easily, fall down the trap of being blackballed in an OR if you say, this is going to take me 30 minutes, especially your first year out of practice, and then it's taking you two hours. And then they're every time you come up, they're looking at you like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually always purposefully book the case for longer than I know it's going to take me. I just, I love it. You know, I walk by the front desk, I'm done for the day. They're like, huh, another good day in the Samora OR, you know, and it's just, um, I, that's purposeful because sometimes you're, you're going to take longer than you, when you book the case, because the, you know, things happen. And so, you know, one of my mentors in residency, Jason Calhoun used to use you know two phrases and he says, some days you're the pigeon and some days you're the statue. And he says, sometimes you're the bear and sometimes you're the, you're the human or, you know, the, sometimes the bear gets you kind of a thing. So, um, I was going to say, but my easy answer is I just, 
tell the front desk it's going to take me two hours to do everything, then I then I don't have to worry about it. It's like it's a type two super condor. How long will it take you? Two hours. You know, then that way when I'm done in 30 minutes, uh, you know, think things are great. But I think the other thing that's great in this kind of era of metrics is that the OR now at this point, they actually have all of your average times. So when I put on a supracondylar fracture, I actually don't put my time in anymore because they know, you know, that we do, you know, 300 of these a year here and that your average time is going to be. So yes, it, 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 you can ask them or they can ask you what your, your standard time is going to be. But for the most part, once you're in practice for a while, it's known. So I think you're for the younger attending that's first doing, you know, their, their cases. I think it's, it's great to, to try to figure that out, but it's also important to be realistic. You know, I think for some reason, people think that faster is better and there are certain things where faster is better as you know in spine surgery you know if you do the same exact operation faster it's going to be better right fewer complications um, not as much blood loss and you know lower infection rate and things like that but for the most part as long as you're progressing forward one way or the other i think the the case is going to to finish at some point with a good result so um, I want to uh, sort of along the same lines, and 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 you mentioned uh, Julie that your interests lie perhaps more in mentorship. Um, and again, we've been sort of fellow instructors at IPOS, but your talks have focused on things like feedback and second victim syndrome, which I think are really important. First of all, how how do these become sort of niche areas of yours? And then secondly. Um, you know, how do we continue to promote these areas um, with, with within the realm of science? Um, so, like for example, we 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 picked our uh, annual meeting this year, and I don't think that there's any papers being presented that sort of follow along that area, right? Even though there's a lot of science that is being done on it. So, how did it start, and then how do we continue to promote that amongst our society? Yeah, I'll start first with the feedback. I think in general in medicine we do not do a good enough job providing feedback. Um, when I was a trainee, I would ask for feedback because that's really the only way I was getting it because people were not offering it. So I think it's really critical for you to learn how you can be better or you're not going to get better. I would remember in residency, listening to attendings talk about how terrible this resident did X, Y, and Z, or uh, whether it was a procedure or taking care of patients. And I would be thinking, well, why aren't you telling the resident this? Why are you telling another resident this? That's not helpful at all. And so for me, I think it's very, very important, good, bad, and ugly to give residents feedback. When I see a good cast in clinic and I have a reduction that stayed that I never thought would stay, I text the before x-ray, I text the x-ray today and said, looks great, um, great job. If I see a cast that comes in that is awful and it's like past the IP joint and it was supposed to be a short arm cast, I take a picture of it and I say, hey, you know, just so you know, I had to get my cast tech, cut this back so the patient could have their thumb. Um, and this is something, you know, you should never go past the, the wrist crease when you're putting on a, um, a short arm or a long arm or a whatever kind of cast. Um, and that feedback is super, super helpful as well. And every resident will send me a text back, of course, oh, wow, this is really good feedback. I mean, they might just be saying that because, you know, that's the right thing to do. But I really do believe it's valuable. And I know that that positive feedback is absolutely um, appreciated. 
from a second victim standpoint, well, I mean, that came from my own personal experience with a really, really unexpected bad outcome that that changed the trajectory of this young lady's life. And so um, that to me uh, was a very traumatizing experience that I still don't want to do this simple five-minute procedure um, how many years later um, because of the bad outcome. And so it made me look, so my way of sort of dealing with it was just learning more about second victim syndrome. And it's fascinating. There was actually lots of fantastic literature out there about, you know, the fact that we as surgeons, healthcare providers don't deal well with bad outcomes. We, we went into this, this field of healthcare to make people better. And certainly if we are part of making people worse, that is, um, that is very devastating. And so as far as a research standpoint, I think it's an area that, you know, only a few people, especially in orthopedics, have have really any interest. And so certainly hard to push the envelope within orthopedics. There is literature in other healthcare specialties out there, of course, in both areas. But again, if you don't have someone waving the flag, then then we're not we're not going to really be able to learn more about this in our specific area of specialty. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Quincy, how about you? I mean, because I think that's that's a, a, a really good way to provide feedback. Um, and I found that in certain areas of my practice, for example, post-call, I, I totally agree, Julie, <laughs> sending some texts that are like, hey, let's, you know, let's look at this cast. And I used to get called out of the OR and sent over to Neil Green's office when I was at Vanderbilt. Uh, and, and he would make me look at the cast in front of the patient. That was always challenging. But I think sometimes... Uh, but sometimes that doesn't work. And sometimes, uh, you know, again, in spine or in hip, their uh, feedback needs to be given differently. W- what are some ways that you do it um, that seem to be effective for you, Quincy? Uh, similarly, I, I try to to talk with the resident kind of before and after. I mean, Julie and I both went to the the orthopedic residency educators course, which was was quite helpful some years back. And so I do utilize a lot of those uh techniques. I think the, you know, talking through the surgery while you're doing it as well gives them an idea. You know, there are some surgeons that really don't talk or can't talk while they operate and some that do. Um, you know, thankfully, we're, we're able to, to try to, to push them through while we're doing it. And I'll usually do some form of debrief. I think that's the beauty for me of, and, and you as well, with doing fewer but longer operations you know if i were doing you know 12 carpal tunnels and done by you know 9 30 or 10 a.m i don't think there's a way you're going to be able to talk to a resident before and after maybe at the end of the day you can say hey you know these are general things other things that are helpful too is we have you know clinical competency committees and all these other committees where everybody gets together you know a couple times a year and i think it's helpful for the residents so that they don't feel like they're being you know, ganged, ganged upon, or they don't feel like it's a personality issue. Because oftentimes if you say, hey, you know, you, you really didn't do well on this rotation, invariably the resident will always say, well, I, I didn't get along with the attending. You know, it was, it was a personality issue and, and whatnot. Whereas when you have these clinical competency committees where there are, you know, 15 members, what we find is the residents that are being flagged early are being flagged by pretty much everybody. You'll bring up a name and they'll say, oh yeah, you know, this resident. It's very rarely just one little thing that they don't do well. And I think the main problem is, is we we sweep it aside and then now they're PGY4s 
and now we have a problem. You say now this this resident has not made the transition to upper level, and it just becomes challenging. So I think for me the the key is just they want feedback even if it's little feedback, but as often as possible. So I'll try to give them feedback, you know, before the case, uh, before the next case, after the case, just to say, listen, you know, what could we have done better? Um, and oftentimes I'll even take them through the case. I'll say, this is how we're going to do it. This is the setup. You know, we have an indications conference where we'll do this in a conference setting. Say, well, this is the surgery. How do you set it up? You know, it's the middle of the night. You're going to be doing this on your own. You know, what bed do you ask for? What equipment do you ask for? And things like that. And I think it's helpful for the residents you know, they, they just need the reps. They, they need to be able to, to figure it out, you know, make a mistake, you know, correct. Because where they make their mistake and where you make your mistake are really not the same, right? You'll see somebody do a case and they'll struggle through one part where you never really struggled through. And yet they'll be able to get through a part that you thought that they would have much more challenge. So, you know, similar, it's it's just, it's a, it's a case by case. And then there are some that come with a certain level of, you know, hand-eye coordination and 3D and some, when you give them the drill, have, you know, don't know which, which one, you know, is, is forward and which one is reverse. So uh, it can be a, it can be a challenge, but, you know, we educate three different residency programs. And so we'll have upwards of 65 residents that go through, um, probably similar to, to your facility. There are a lot. And so we have, a very large, you know, MD program. We have a small MD community program, then we have a very large DO program. So we also see a lot of different mindsets when it comes to medicine. And so the, the education piece is, is challenging only because it just takes time to really get to know the, the resident. Yeah, you bring up a really important point, which I, I don't want to go off too much, but I, I'd love to hear your thought on, which is, I feel like, um, when the three of us, uh, at least Quincy, I, I think our time, uh, when I went through as a, as a resident or as a student, there was a lot of hands-on work that I was responsible for even, you know, as a third and fourth year. And I feel, unfortunately, like that is less and less of our students. And then I feel as though, whether it be from duty hours or whether it be from just change, paradigm shifts in how we deliver elective care, there's less hands-on work for junior residents. And you start to see that. And we've seen that here amongst residents who I think are very well educated, meaning they come from great institutions, but their experiences differ. So you can come from the best you know, academic institution in the country, but if they don't let them get in and actually get their hands dirty early on, you don't really know where they're at. And then they can fall behind pretty quickly. Um, and then it's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard. Almost, I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, marriage. I mean, you know, if, if all of a sudden a year in, if you had, if you decided, you know, you guys just met and then three months later, you, you're looking for a ring, Julie, you said that, that, that could have gone to one of two ways and you guys have, have made it work well, but sometimes that doesn't. And it, and it's challenging to sort of ra- uh, rectify it early on. What, what strategies have you had for the young learner who really has fallen behind? So I think one of the main differences in education now is you know the old see one do one teach one is not as prevalent and and I agree when when we were going through residencies there were some cases where you know you really did skin to skin on your own with no resident and no attending in the room nowadays if if a resident 
does a pinning and I have my hand on the drill the entire time and then help them put the cast on, you'll hear them talk to their buddies afterwards. Oh yeah, I did that one skin to skin. It's a very different, it's a very different uh, time. And I think now it's more, more simulation and more, you know, cadaver, more, you know, low fidelity, high fidelity, arthroscopic, as in, you know, one will, will give you a cadaver knee and the other will have a box with two holes in it where you'll, you know, figure out your arthroscopic skills. And I think training courses and whatnot, but there isn't as much actual practicing on the actual patient, which I don't think is a bad thing as long as there's some oversight there. And the, the one thing about our institution here is the resident can never be without an attending. So we're actually not able or allowed to run two rooms. So it makes it easy for us because I think on a day when we came in and if there were 10 trauma cases to do, if we were able to run two cases, I think some of us would say, hey, listen, let's, let's let our upper level resident one run room and, and we'll run the other. It's just not, it's a policy. So we actually have to be there um, for, you can do a little bit of overlap if you have two rooms and you can flip, but for the most part, and that's a whole other topic of, you know, concurrent versus overlapping surgery, we are, we are not able to do uh, concurrent surgery here. I, I love that that answer, uh, Quincy. Julie, I wanted to uh, move on to something that I know that you've gotten passionate or that you're very passionate about and has been more prominently featured over the past couple of years within POSN, which is sort of DEI, and in particular representing women in orthopedics. And this may be a little bit of a rhetorical question, um, but can you sort of talk about how that passion arose, um, especially just sort of being such a, a vocal advocate within the organization and why you feel like it's just so important for us. I mean, again, it, it, this may be a rhetorical question. Yeah, no, I, I don't actually know where my passion first started. I just know that, um, like, I love this concept of she for she. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of Shalene Flanagan, who's a, a long distance runner. And everyone's so surprised because she essentially trains with her competitors and, um, you know, basically she, she explained that, in fact, by working together, each other can sort of serve as rocket boosters for each other. And I just, I love that concept. And, you know, I mean, I don't need to go into the data. I think you're well-versed in this as far as, you know, a more diverse healthcare setting allows for better outcomes. It's very, very simple. You know, there's, there's a lot of benefit for having diversity. And, you know, orthopedics... It's it's incredibly homogenous. Um, I mean, the vast majority across the the globe are are sort of the same looking people. They look like me. And not, not, <laughs> not yeah, they look like you and Quincy. I get it. I get it. And 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 it's it's fine. I mean, you, you, if you are in need of an ACL, it probably doesn't matter who your surgeon is. Doesn't matter what they look like, what their background is. But if you are someone that's considering a STEM field, if you're considering going into medicine, if you're considering a surgical field and you don't feel like you belong, you're probably not going to pursue it. And so for me, the goal is to make this specialty appealing no matter what your background is. Um, and I think that all of us have a role to play, whether you're a white male or a black female or in the LGBTQ community in, in making this specialty inclusive and welcoming. And, and if I even play a small role in changing this feeling or this culture or this inclusivity, I feel like I will have succeeded in my career. 
and uh, which I think is great. And how do you feel like we as as Posner are doing? I think orthopedics. We have a long, long way to go. But I remember distinctly that uh, I don't. I don't know if you guys were in Barcelona, but I remember that picture well. I was sort of standing off to the side and and looking at the picture of all the females within Pozna, and it was an impressive group. I mean, it's an impressive group because they're just like so many really uh, successful sort of em, uh, preeminent people in that group, but also just, it, it seemed large. Um, how do you feel like we're doing as POSNA? Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty evident that we are the best subspecialty in all of orthopedics from a diversity standpoint. I think we're really approaching 30% women. We still have a long way to go with our um, minority population, um, but if you look at sort of that critical number, 30% is the critical number. And we are we are essentially there, not from an attending standpoint, but certainly from our, our, our members and our uh, candidate member standpoint. Um, and that's really, I would say, a coup and something we should pat ourselves on the back and applaud ourselves. But, you know, the work is not done. And where do you feel like the biggest obstacles are right now? And I'm going to give you sort of two areas, and you can tell me if the, it's outside of those two areas. So one obstacle would be on our end, so on Ponza's end, that we're not doing enough, that we're not inclusive enough. And the other would be on the supply end, right? So is this more of a supply or a demand issue? Are we seeing that the biggest challenge right now is just a lack of volume, of people wanting to come into peds ortho or can we do more within pediatric orthopedics to support women than we're doing currently? So I think the biggest issue in healthcare is really a pipeline issue. Uh, so I think that's first and foremost, the, the challenge is that we do not have enough folks in underrepresented groups going into medicine in general, which, you know, we can or cannot, you know, have a, a, a hand in that from an orthopedic or a pediatric orthopedic standpoint. And then within the field of orthopedics in general, I think that has a lot to do with culture. I think that has a lot to do with making sure people feel that this is not just a bro culture and that you are actually wanted in this field. From a pediatric orthopedic standpoint, I really feel as though we are doing what we can. And I think, if especially if you look at the numbers, we've certainly enticed more underrepresented groups into this specialty than anyone else. If you look at spine, you look at arthroplasty, they really are struggling to have a more diverse uh, provider population. Gotcha. And then within, within POSNA, and you and I actually talked about this briefly when we were putting together the annual meeting, we realized or I, I realized when you're sort of looking for preeminent, especially females right now, sort of at, in the latter stages of their career, you know, Lori was such like a, uh, a light for everybody. Um, but there are fewer sort of more senior females um, in academic medicine, um, at least it, I think to our eyes. And how do you see POSNA, what, what is POSNA doing and how can they continue to advocate for sort of mid-career females, especially getting into sort of those senior level positions? Um, yeah, I, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head is that there just are a dearth of individuals that can lead into those senior leadership roles because they just don't exist right now. As far as kind of what the organization is doing, I think they're being very thoughtful about really trying to bring in diversity. So for example, I mean, you know, you're on the program committee, we serve together sort of from a planning purposes and just 
figuring out, okay, let's make sure we have diversity of moderators. And so we spent a long time in Chicago trying to figure out who can we put in these specialties sections, whether it's foot and ankle or spine or hip, that, that are diverse folks. And I, I think we're being um, you know, more thoughtful about it than many of our sort of sister or brother organizations in orthopedics. And I think it's you're trying to really put forward folks that are in underrepresented groups to be speakers or moderators or you know guest lecturers. I think that's something that we are going to continue to have to do to give people the opportunity to show their skills and abilities. And on the flip side, folks that are tasked with these um, really great opportunities need to definitely show their prowess. And so it's going to be um, need to, you know, that needs to happen on both sides of the coin. Yeah. And Quincy, uh, sort of in your role and and from on the rotation side, on the director of, of the PEDS rotation, are you guys doing any specific work to sort of re- recruit, especially females, underrepresented minorities into PEDS um, specific to the rotation, the way, rot- the way the rotation is set up, the education, the interactions that you're going to be sort of prescribing uh, for the learners as they come through? I think that, you know, one of the major problems or hurdles for the you know, diversity and inclusivity is the process just takes so long. You know, this is this is not something that you can institute in a year and then, you know, reap the, the benefits the next year because of the you know, college and med school and residency and fellowship. So I am also involved in the residency selection committees of two of the three that we do. And I think that's where you know, as far as from a grassroots standpoint, is is how far back do you go, right? Uh, so for me, I uh, I do make an attempt to basically make every intern a, a PD pod, right? So I start really early. I mean, That's really great. early. Yep. And you know, it's and and certainly with with the threes and a lot of it, mm. you can see they have a, a little bit. You know, they love playing with the kids, or you know, they enjoy the the patient interactions. And so I really do. I, I make an attempt to to have everybody that, that rotates through become a, become a PD pod. And I think we have a pretty large number of those that go into PEDS from Columbus. If you look at just from, from the different areas. And part of that I think is, is just the experience that they get at, at our hospital. But yes, I, I do make a, an attempt for really much, pretty much everybody to, to be a, a PD pod. Certainly those that, that show, you know, a little bit of, of interest. I've been whispering in my kids' ears for their entire life, which is why I think they're both interested. We'll hopefully see both my daughter and son in our field. So that's good. So I want to move away from medicine because we've just got a little bit of time left. Um, but uh, what? so you talked about tennis, which I love because my wife and I started about eight years ago um, and we are not anywhere near as good as you, but it is something that we enjoy doing together. Um We've at times been able to coerce the kids into coming with us, but now, you know, at their teenage levels, they have no interest in hitting us. Uh, what do you guys love doing now? Uh, what do you like doing with the kids and sort of what's life look like outside of the hospital? We, we try to be as active as possible. So when the weather's nice, we have three dogs. We'll, we'll take them for runs. Um, our kids' schedules are fairly schizophrenic so they're they're both running around doing different things and so we we try to divide and conquer you know with the two of us um, 
our daughter has a gymnastics meet and our son has a tennis tournament. We'll try to, to do one, one or the other. Actually, yesterday we were able to both see my daughter's uh, gymnastics meet, which was, which was great. It's, it's a, it's rare to have both of us at one event at the same time. Most of the time that we spend together, I think is going to be on our family vacations and whatnot. We, we try to break up the year into a, a few here or there where we're able to really, they can't get away from us because we're, we're in, you know, in a, in a yeah, yeah, place. those are good. Um, and spring break is, is coming up and things like that. But yeah, I think we prioritize activities. We prioritize, we go, um, we've done quite a bit of hiking together uh, recently. We stumbled upon a nice hiking trail when we were vacationing in uh, the Smoky Mountains and were able to, to see these azalea blooms that only bloom, you know, for a couple weeks a year. And uh, you're probably more familiar. That's it's more your your part of the of the country. But, yeah, we, we, we try to do as much as we can. And most of it involves some form of, you know, physical activity, you know, kayaking, um, just outdoor outdoorsy fun stuff. Does that include like if you two happen to get a weekend to get uh, away together, um, uh, outdoorsy stuff, sort of a mountain weekend? I know that whole concept of weekend away is is almost for, more foreign to me than anything else these yeah, days. Yeah, I don't know that we've had the opportunity <laughs> just the two of us to go away for a weekend. It's usually as a family or like Quincy said, dividing and conquering. He goes. Yep. He went to a cheer weekend one time in new Orleans and I was home with Ethan and he'll I'll often go with Ethan to tennis tournaments and he's home with Aaron. So it is, um, we try very hard though, that one of us is always going to be there for our kid activities, whether it's a, a concert or a, a tournament or uh, some sort of meet, we'll, we'll try to be there for, for the kids. It is. My, my daughter plays travel across and most of the travel across is in the mid Atlantic. So I think we're, 10 or 12 weekends a year flying to, uh, and you know, and, and my son fortunately doesn't do that level of, of athletics. I don't know how, you know, how you do it without that much competition in one household. So what, what about this? So Quincy, if Julie gave you the afternoon off to do whatever, to just have a, a free afternoon, what are you going to do on your own? I you mean, after I wake up from my nap. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Then I know I, I think depending on, on the time, uh, we do like to exercise whenever we can go hit the gym. Uh, we have a little gym downstairs, go for a run, um, uh, hit tennis balls with one of my, with one of my buddies. Um, and, and Julie, if you got a, a free week, a free afternoon where Quincy was going to take the kids and I, for me, it's exercise, exercise, exercise. For me, I'm, I'm at my happiest when I'm outside. So yeah. if I can find a way to be outside and if that also involves tennis, that's like a win-win. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, guys, this has been so much fun. It was exactly what I was I was hoping for. Uh, no better way to spend a good Sunday morning. And you guys were, were both great and game to do this as a couple. Um, but I thought, like I said, you're sort of the first family in Peds Ortho right now, yeah. uh, which is pretty awesome. Thanks so much, Nick. It's been Thanks, great. Nick. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you. Are you guys both going to? I know, Julie, you'll be there. Um, Quincy, are you going to make it down to Nashville? No, I have to. I have to stay and take call. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we'll catch up soon. Great to see you guys and enjoy the rest of your Sunday and, and good luck with uh, tennis meets or tennis matches and uh, uh, gymnastics meets. Okay. Take, right. care. Take care. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye.